Judges chapter 17. Chapters 17 through 21 of the book of Judges, as we finish up now, we'll see, describe, uh, if we have not seen, that would be already in chapters 1 through 16, uh, describe very, very dark and ungodly times uh, in the nation of Israel. Uh, we are not exactly certain historically where the events of chapter 17 through 21 really fit. Uh, some believe uh, that this could potentially be somewhat of an appendix to the book of Judges in the sense that some of the things that are described here perhaps did not happen after the time of Samson. Of course, one of the things that you'll see will be unique as we finish these last few chapters is there's no more mention of any judges, which is predominantly what we've seen in the first 16 chapters together with Othniel and Ehud and uh, you know Jephthah and, and and Samson and Gideon, these different judges that God raised up in this very dark time of Israel's history when they went through these cycles. And we'll see that that now comes to a close. And we're not exactly certain, as I said, some believe, though we finish with the life of Samson, the last judge recorded, uh, that these events could have taken place after that time. Others believe that these could have been things that took place maybe at the end of Joshua's life and which sort of precipitated the need for the time of the judges to come about. And this is kind of just describing how dark things really were just among the society and events that were going on. Either way, uh, they really describe some rather tragic times, and not just tragic times, keep in mind and take notice, among the society in general of the nation of Israel. But these are things the Bible's describing were taking place among what were supposed to be God's people among the people of God themselves. And whenever God's authority, we'll see, is ignored, and whenever God's standards are set aside and rejected, just like we read here, it always brings a period of great compromise and confusion spiritually. And we'll see that very clearly in tonight's chapters, a time of just tremendous confusion spiritually, uh, where there's a disregard of Scripture, there's a disregard of God's truth and a period when people also then begin to just cast off restraint. And it really just becomes anything goes and there is no standard of right and wrong. What's good is called evil. What's evil is called good, as Isaiah says. And people cast off restraint regarding what's moral, what's proper, and just begin to do as they each individually desire and create their own standard and ideas of what is right and moral. And that's what we see happening really in these chapters. And conditions because of that worsen. Things begin to spiral out of control. I mean, if there would be a... Uh, rated R to rated X section of scripture uh, as we get to next week that's going to start to push the limits with that a little bit uh, in regards to some of the things that are recorded there and again as I said what's worse is the breakdown of the nation at this time stemmed from please hear me compromise among God's people it was the compromise that began among God's people that really was what caused the breakdown and the deterioration among the morality and the standards of the society as a whole. You know, it makes us wonder sometimes if that's why Peter wrote what he did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he said, the time has begin for the time has come, he says, for judgment to begin at the house of God. Uh, no doubt it's probably as well why that scripture, many of us know it well, where God says uh, in the book of Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will 
humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll heal from heaven and, and heal their land. And again, but, but the thing that everybody always overlooks is that God says, my people. You know, we always want to point fingers at the world. Oh, the world's legislating this and they're doing that and they're kicking God out of schools and they won't let us pray in school. But the same people don't pray in church. And God is saying, when my people stop compromising, when my people get serious, when my people humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, because they know better, God would say. They have a revelation of Scripture. They supposedly have the spirit of truth and the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit dwelling with them. And God said, when my people come to a place of repentance, that is when genuine revival really begins to take place where God hears and, and moves in a powerful way. And very sadly, we'll see. Again, these are records of supposed people of God, even the ministers, the Levites, those who were to be the spiritual leaders in that day. And we'll see here, take note, that a religious lifestyle that disregards the word of God is a very dangerous thing. And when we just want to use the things of God or the word of God or even the name of God or Christian as just a label and a lifestyle, but yet we want to compromise and disregard the, the word of God says, that really can become almost a greater danger and a more destructive thing. So uh, difficult things, as I said, in some ways to perhaps draw application out of very dark and unfortunate times, but nonetheless, we'll trust the Holy Spirit to give to us what he and that's profitable out of these things. Look with me in verse 1 as it begins in chapter 17. It says, Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now the name Micah means who is like the Lord. So great name. If you're looking for a, a name for a son, certainly a great biblical name, that name means who is like the Lord. So anytime he heard his name, that was the idea is indicating there is no one as great as God. There's nobody like the Lord, that God's superior, who is like the Lord. And that's what the word and name Micah means. But again, tragically, though he has this really great name, which should cause him by the name to think about God and to want to serve God and have an awareness of God, despite the label he carries, his lifestyle completely contradicts everything that his name represents. And God help us. We take the title to ourselves Christian. Uh, and, and Christian indicates a representative of Christ, the follower of Christ. In fact, the word Christian, remember, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, uh, that name was first given in a derogatory sense. It literally meant little Christ's. And that was the idea is that the unsaved world were saying these people, they're, they're like a bunch of those little Christ. They're like, they're like that Jesus. They're, they're like a bunch of little Jesuses, like little Christ, miniature versions just going all over and turning the world upside down with the way that they live so different. But again, it implies the idea of who we represent because of who we follow. And because of that, that we should bear a certain representation by the way that we live. And so it's a very sad thing, I think we would all agree, when somebody claims the name of Christ and then they live in compromise and inconsistency with what that represents. Nothing does more disservice to the witness of the Lord than when we do that or we, of course, see people doing that. Or maybe you, you know, have a, a friend or somebody in the job that claims to be a believer and, and, you know, and they're the one who's dropping the F-bomb or you know, cussing or, or talking about getting drunk on the weekend or carousing like everybody else. And you're thinking, oi, what are you doing? Like, what are we? And, and, and here, sadly, Micah has this wonderful godly name given to him who is like the Lord. 
but his title and his label does not match his lifestyle, and it's very tragic, the inconsistency. But you look, watch where the inconsistency comes from. It stemmed from his home life and from the confusion, really, that his parents implanted in his heart in many ways. We'll see. Look at this verse 2. It says, And he said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ear, so he had heard this curse, overheard it one way or the other, here is the silver with me. He says, Mom, I confess, I'm the one that took it. So the story opens up with this man, Micah. Notice, not only is this guy, Micah, a, a selfish, greedy thief, but he actually stealing from his mama. I mean, that's pretty low. When not only you're selfish and greedy enough to become a thief and to rob someone, and that's quite a substantial amount of money, 1,100 shekels of silver. We're going to see later in this chapter that uh, this uh, individual, Levite, is offered a salary of a year's worth of 10 shekels of silver. So if that's an average annual salary, 10 shekels of silver, imagine how much 1,100 shekels of silver. This is a substantial amount of money that he has stolen from his mom. Uh, apparently it seems that he becomes nervous because of the curse that he hears about. She pronounces, whoever stole that money from my bank account, you know, cursed. And so she pronounces this curse upon whoever stole this money. And because it seems he's a very superstitious individual, he may present himself as spiritual, but he's more superstitious than spiritual. Apparently he's not sorry but he's fearful and he's superstitious of what the curse may bring upon him. So that's what actually prompts him not wanting something bad to happen. He comes now and he confesses to mama, I'm the one that took it. Here's the money back. I'm sorry. I, I stole from you. And again, what, what a rather sad and tragic thing when, when a child would steal from their own parent. But yet, sadly, this kind of stuff happens. I think of many different scenarios that I've seen before and been a part of where, for example, maybe somebody's addicted to drugs, has a substance abuse problem, and they'll actually steal from their own parents, uh, take money from them, rip off their own parents to substantiate their selfishness or their habit or some indulgence in some way. And, and here this man Micah steals from his mother he now fesses up as I said rather because of a, a superstitious attitude which again superstition is that whole idea that you're afraid something is going to happen it's not based on reason or any proof it's just well well, if, if there's a curse upon it well that means something bad may happen and I don't want something bad to happen I don't want no bad juju so he, he comes to her and he says I took your money mom here's the money back and look at this verse 17 uh, she's a real helpful parent his mother said to him, oh, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So uh, she just basically, rather than you know, deal with the issue, why would you steal from me? Could we talk about that? <laughs> she, she just right away tries to reverse. This is, seems her, we hear her way. She wants to reverse the curse now. So she says, well, I've cursed you for taking the money. So uh, let me reverse the curse by now pronouncing a blessing upon you. And so she pronounces this blessing upon him to try and reverse things. Verse three, look what it goes on to say. And so when he returned the 1100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother then said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord. Notice capital L-O-R-D. That's the covenant name of Jehovah God or Yahweh. I had wholly dedicated that money to the Lord for my son wait a minute, to make a carved image 
and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it back to you, son. So notice right away, as I said, this is called spiritual confusion. Very clear inconsistency going on here. Seeking spirituality, but yet apart from adherence to the scripture as one's authority in their life. Again, keep in mind, she basically here drops the name of the Lord. She says, I had dedicated this money to the Lord, to Yahweh God. I had fully dedicated it over to him to bless him and to help my son. And yet the way she wants to do it is she drops the name of the Lord, but now she's acting in a way that disregards what? The word of the Lord. Because again, this is a clear violation of the second commandment. Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, God said, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And what is she saying? I dedicated this money to the Lord to break the word of the Lord, <laughs> to make an idol, to create a carved image, something that you could use. This is open and conscious idolatry. And yet, what is she doing? She's kind of dropping the Lord's name but then using her own standards and ideas to operate by. And this is a mother here who's living a spiritual life that is marked by open inconsistency. There's total inconsistency here in what she's doing. And let's just be very honest. Sadly, people do this. There are people who they use the name of the Lord. They drop the name of the Lord. They want to add a little bit of God or the Lord into their life, but yet they want to live in complete inconsistency and they want to dictate to God their terms of how they're going to live. And, and what they basically want to do is what fits for them. That works and, and they'll comply with those things. But what doesn't fit for them, then well, they, they don't want to necessarily uh, comply with that. So they won't adhere to that. And basically, they want to live for God and serve God on their own terms. And this just causes tremendous confusion and complete inconsistency. And here's what's very sad. Again, because these are parent, this is a parent doing this, and we'll see as the chapter goes on, that spiritual inconsistency and confusion is what her son Micah is exposed to, and then sadly, he just repeats the same processes and patterns in his own spiritual life. And he lives in spiritual inconsistency and, and lives a life of spiritual confusion, of compromise and disregard of the word of God and kind of picking and choosing what he wants. And, and sadly, boy, I have seen more than once this take place. And if there is probably, you know, one of the most severe disservices that we can cause to our children as parents is to do that kind of a thing is to demonstrate the spiritual confusion of inconsistency where we want to claim the name of the Lord or say we follow the Lord but yet then we don't want to live in submission to and honor the word of the Lord and we disregard certain parts of the word of God and so we have little concessions and compromises and we live this way in our personal and domestic lives and we cause tremendous confusion for our children because then our children grow up in a way saying okay so basically what I understand is you can be a follower of the Lord, but the areas of the Lord that don't work for your preference or maybe what you want to pursue or your, your, you know, your, your desires or ideas, you can kind of pick and choose those and you can tweak those. So if you want to be a follower of the Lord, but yet you want to also kind of have this 
inappropriate habit or indulgence, well, well, that's okay. You just, that's your exception. And your child may then gravitate towards that same exception or what they'll do is say, well, that was my parents' exception, but I'm going to have exception A and B for me because I don't necessarily have, you know, maybe dad's desires to live in that way disobedient. But hey, every Christian gets an exception, right? So their exception was dad said he served the Lord, but he looked at pornography. That was just dad's thing. For me, I'm just, I'm going to serve the Lord and, and yet get a little lit up and drunk on the weekends and just be a, you know, a, a regular drinker. But that, that'll, that'll just be my thing. You know, I need to get my buzz on once in a while. And, 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 and whatever it may be, we create this environment where we indicate inconsistency is acceptable. And it's tremendous confusion. You know, not that long ago, I was, uh, I'll tell you another area that I've seen inconsistency and confusion. I was talking to a very good Christian friend of mine. He has four children. And having some struggles in his marriage relationship and, uh, you know, some of the challenges that they're having, there are a multitude of things. But one of the things you said to me, he said, you know, what? quite frankly, he said, it's just easier to let her be the spiritual leader in our home. He said, it just just works better. It's just easier. I don't want to deal with the headache and the hassle. It's just her personality. She's a dominant. And I just said to him, I said, listen, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, if you want to live in disobedience in the way your home life operates... By being a passive man and letting your wife basically be the one who's wearing the pants in the family spiritually and in every other way. If you want to live that way the rest of your life, that's your personal choice. But please be aware, you're not only living that way out of God's design with one family, you're also perpetuating that probably for four more families because when each one of your kids watches and observes that and sees that, they're going to step out of your home and your daughter and your sons, they're going to follow the same patterns. And I said, you don't have the right to mess up for other families. So if you want to embrace your own inconsistency, that's one thing, but be careful. And as parents, I cannot exhort us enough. We need to recognize that what we choose to do and not do Listen, it doesn't matter what you say. What we say is one thing. It's what our children observe and see. That's what really has the impact. And I'm not saying any one of us are perfect. That's not my point. But we, this is not an issue of, oops, I messed up. This is blatant inconsistency. This is idolatry in the home. And we know when something is blatantly inconsistent with Scripture. And we certainly, certainly should never allow that to go on. And if it's happening in our homes, it's something we should reconcile as quickly as possible, apologizing to our children, admitting it, and making the adjustments really that we should. So she says here, I'm going to create this idol for you, a, a total you know, contradiction to Scripture. In verse 4, thus he returned the silver to his mother, and his mother, as she said, took 200 shekels of silver. Apparently she didn't use the whole amount. She kept some for herself, it seems. And gave that to the silversmith, she found a good deal on her idol, and made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. So it seems Micah at this point was someone maybe who even was an older individual, but look what happens. Verse 5, look how his house operates. Then the man Micah had a shrine, so he set up his own little worship location, built a little addition, his own little sanctuary on his house. He had a shrine. And he made an ephod, that's one of the implements that the priest would wear, and his household idols, so he's got a house full of these teraphim or pagan idols set up, little statues, and then he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. 
So Micah here, look what happens. He basically establishes his own little worship system. He, he, he learns spiritual confusion. Tragically, you can see from his own mother and apparently what he was exposed to. And he just continues it now, not only in his own personal life, but he's perpetuating with his own children now. So much to the point we see he establishes his own personal worship system based on convenience. They were to worship the Lord in, in connection with the tabernacle and the altar and the sacrificial system, which was at Shiloh at this point, but it was a, a prescribed manner God gave according to the law and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, all the things that we've learned in the prior sections in the Old Testament. But instead of submitting to and participating in God's established way of worship, he ignores and disregards God's way of doing things. And he basically just prescribes what is convenient for himself and what would also grant to him, take notice, the opportunity to just be his own spiritual authority. He decides to make one of his own sons his priest and to set up his own little shrine and worship area and, and allow his son to be a priest. Why? So he can control things. So he can be in charge ultimately. He doesn't have to submit to the spiritual authority of the high priest or, or one of the Levites. Again, instead, I'll just make one of my own sons my priest. And, you know, not too difficult then uh, to just kind of be in control in your own spiritual life then if you make your own son your priest. If, you know, if, if he doesn't you know, teach something or say something you like, you just keep his allowance back. You know, I mean, just, this is just a complete indication that this man is just opting for convenience. He wants what's easy. He wants what's convenient. He wants a simple, convenient, easy, personally conducive worship life. And again, total spiritual confusion here, establishing his own religion and just spiraling way out of God's design and what's going on. In verse six, here's the reason why for all these things in those days, again, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So again, verse six, this sort of theme verse for the book of Judges in this dark time morally and spiritually, the Bible indicates here that there was a lack of leadership and that was what created much of the problems in the culture and among God's people. It says there was no king in Israel in those days. And think about it. What does a king do? A king basically, simply provides guidance and direction. Well, that's one thing. But what a king also does in his function is he exercises authority to keep people as well within boundaries that are proper and to regulate and restrain man's evil tendencies. That's what a king does. Certainly they give guidance and direction, but they also exercise their authority to restrain and regulate the evil tendencies of human beings. And leadership and authority, we always have to remember, is a much needed thing for us, especially as sinful, rebellious human beings. We need a measure of authority in our lives, all of us. And we see it throughout the Bible, whenever there's an absence of leadership, an absence of a leader directing God's people, it always led to everyone making their own judgments according to their own perspectives. The absence of authority here allowed for people to just do whatever they desired with their own perspective and ideas. And rather than doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, it says everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. That is, according to whatever they viewed was acceptable 
whatever they wanted to deem was appropriate. They elevated their human ideas and desires in matters over God's word and God's ways. This is basically the exercise of not only anarchy, but really what relativism is, which relativism is basically the mindset that truth is not absolute. It's not a fixed thing of right or wrong, but it's relative to each person's preferences and persuasions and whatever your perspective is. You hold your ideas of truth. I have my ideas of truth wrong. God is the author of truth. And God's truth is absolute. There is to be no deviation of it. And when God's truth is ignored, as we can see right here in our Bible text, problems result in people's lives, among God's people, among families, and even worse, in societies and cultures and nations as a whole. So verse 7, look what happens here. It says, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah, and he was a Levite. And he was staying there. And the man, this Levite, departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. The idea is he's roaming around looking for employment. He's, he's looking for some type of a job or something to engage in. Again, this could be because the people had forsaken supporting uh, the temple or the tabernacle, excuse me, and the Levites. Uh, Bethlehem isn't even one of the Levitical cities, so we don't even know what he's doing in Bethlehem. He's wandering around doing other things when he should have been fulfilling his spiritual calling, which was to live in one of those 48 cities of the Levites. He was designated to, to be a spiritual example, to be a teacher of the law of God, the people, and to assist in tabernacle worship periodically as well. Instead of being occupied in that and doing what he's supposed to, he's just wandering around looking for a better opportunity. He's wandering. This is guy's an opportunist here. So he's just journeying around now, looking for a place. And it says he came, verse 8, to the mountains of Ephraim, lo and behold, to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, hey, where do you come from? So he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. So I'm looking for somewhere to go, somewhere to settle in. I'm look, looking for something to do. And this is the quickest job interview ever. Micah said to him, well, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes and your sustenance, room and board. So the Levite went in so Micah says to him, "Hey, what? Well, listen, I, I I got this little religious system going here, and uh, wow, I mean, you're a Levite. I mean, that's I mean, that's a, that's like a step up. And and my son hasn't been doing the greatest job as a priest anyway. So you're a Levite, and 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 that's one step closer. And why don't you come and 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 I'll give you a job, and I'll give you ten shekels a year for a, a salary and a few other perks and bennies, give you a new suit of clothes and some room and board. And he thinks, hey, this is the best job offer I've gotten in a while. I've been wandering all around Israel, and sure, you got it. Make a deal, and so uh, no problem. And and so he kind of comes on board as as a hireling and allows Micah here to hire him. Now keep in mind here again complete spiritual confusion anybody couldn't just become a priest numbers chapter 3 specifically verse 10 said only the sons and lineage of aaron could be priests 
You couldn't just be a Levite and decide to be a priest. You couldn't take that calling of God to yourself. Levites were called to be ministers. They were called to assist the priests, to teach the word of God and assist in the priesthood. But only the sons of Aaron had that special spiritual calling upon their lives to actually function as priests. So uh, this here, again, is a complete contradiction to the scripture uh, it's going outside of God's boundaries and what God had intended. And he was becoming a priest only because there was opportunity to do such. And he's being hired basically uh, because Micah is willing to finance him to do this spiritual work and religious duty, if you would, for him. Well, verse 11, it says the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So take notice. Why don't you be a father and a priest? But because... His boss is paying him. Instead, he became like a son. And the reality is, listen, when he hires you to be his priest, well, you got a real issue on your hand. You basically can't do anything to upset him because he's your boss. And so if you say something he doesn't like or challenge him on his sin or talk to him about spiritual matters or inconsistency, what's he going to do? Hey, you're fired, man. I'm cutting off your paycheck. No more ten shekels of silver of you for a year. And give me back that raiment of clothes and move your stuff out. So instead, it, you know, he becomes literally like one of his sons, the more of a family friendship relationship. Again, why? Because Micah doesn't want accountability. He doesn't want somebody to challenge his spiritual compromise. He just wants to have a little bit of God in his life to feel good about who he is and to live in a state of compromise. So Micah, verse 12, consecrated the Levite, the young man, and he became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Look at verse 13. And Micah said, here's his reasoning, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. Again, it shows you the complete confusion that exists at this time spiritually. This is a totally, again, superstitious attitude. Here he's living in total compromise in many different ways. But yet he believes just because now, not only does he got his own priest, but he's got a little better than his son. He's got actually one of them Levite people as a priest. He's thinking, hey, that means that God's going to give favor to my life now. It's, it's like he's got his, his spiritual rabbit's foot. He's got his lucky rabbit's foot. Certainly, he says, God will be good to me since I'm a Levite as a priest. And, and tragically, here he is thinking that God will bless him because he has a, a little bit of spirituality in his life. This is a, a tragic mindset of confusion. Again, where, as I said, people will, will kind of think, well, I can kind of do what I want but I'll just kind of drop the name of the Lord once in a while and maybe, you know, rub the spiritual genie a little bit. I mean, I'll put a little bit of God into my life and, and surely that will gain or, or, or obtain God's favor in my life. And this is just a very sad, confused mindset, but just where people go to, unfortunately, when they're not governed by the truth of the word of God. This is, again, this is religion without the word of God as the authority in the situation. It's just a lifestyle of religiosity without an adherence to the truth of the word of God as one's authority in their life and just a very compromised, confusing condition. Well, it says chapter 18, verse 1, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, 
Their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. Now, chapter 18 is going to record this pursuit of the Danites, the people of the tribe of Dan, as they go all the way up far north now to the area of Laish to basically take over another territory. Now, it says they're seeking an inheritance for themselves to dwell in. Now, right away, according to, again, Joshua 19 and other places, that indicates that what they're doing is they're not choosing to embrace the allotment God already gave to them. They actually were given an allotment from Joshua of a very nice, uh, fertile coastal area down further south where they're currently at, But tragically, they didn't make the necessary sacrifices in faith and obedience to drive out the enemies that were in that territory. The Amorites and then ultimately the Philistines took a a great stronghold in that area. So what they're doing now by wanting to go up north is they're looking for something that's a little easier. They're looking for a little more convenient path. And we don't, you know, we don't want to do what's right and hard and obey in faith and walk out things right here where we're at and where we should with what God has given to us already. Uh, instead, we are looking to just avoid as many challenges as we have and, and we just want to move on and find what's more easy. And this is really what the Danites are doing. They're, they're looking for an easier and a more convenient path that does not require Here's the C word, commitment. Oh, anything we can do to avoid commitment. If we stay here and do what's right and what God's truly called us to do and have to walk out in faith and obedience, that might involve commitment or sacrifice or or effort. So they're looking for the easiest path possible, the most convenient route. And here's what's interesting. Sadly, it's this tribe with that kind of spiritual attitude that's the first tribe that enters into idolatry. The first tribe to enter into idolatry are these people who don't want commitment. They don't want to walk in obedience. They're looking for ease and convenience and what's the easiest path rather than just embracing what God had for them instead in front of them. So verse 2, the children of Dan sent out five men from their family from their territory, men of valor from Zura and Eshtel to go and spy out the land and search for it. And they said to them, go search the land. And they went to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of, guess who? Micah. And they had lodged there. And while they were there at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Now, again, I don't know how they recognized his voice, if it was you know, something in his speech or they knew him from before, but they turned aside and said to them, said to him, Who brought you here? (laughs) And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? Now, usually those are good indications that maybe you're not where you're supposed to be. (laughs) What are you doing here? This isn't where you're supposed to be. And, you know, whenever somebody has to say to you as one of God's people, uh, what are you doing here? That's usually a real good indication you're probably not where you're supposed to be. What are you doing here? And he said to them, thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me. Hey, I got a job and I've become his priest. So they said to him, please inquire of God then that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. (laughs) So here they are. They're doing something that's completely contrary to what God's intention is for them. 
They're avoiding God's will for them, God's plan for them, looking for an easier, more convenient way just to escape dealing with what God wanted them to deal with in the place where they were to just run off and find a convenient, easy path for themselves. And what are they looking for? They're looking for somebody to just endorse what they're doing. So they say, hey, you're a priest. I mean, God, is God going to prosper away? And they're just looking for the quick and easy. Would you just you know, put a, throw a blessing on us, man, would you? And it kind of reminds me of like, remember when Rocky would get in his fights and he'd always run down and, and yell up to the, uh, you know, the, the father of the priest there in the window. And he'd be like, father, I'm going to have a rumble. And he just, he's like, can you throw down a blessing for me? Just put, put the favor on me, you know? And this is kind of the idea here. And so, you know, this guy just, he's a, you know, a pay-for-service priest. He's not a real minister in his heart. So he says, yes, the presence of the Lord be with you. Go in peace. May God bless you in what you're doing, even though you're disobeying the word of God and his will for your life. You know, and this is kind of a, a sad thing. Again, you, you see the confusion of this. But again, please, please recognize when someone is not a true and faithful minister of the Lord, they'll just say whatever pleases people. That's what they're going to do. They're just going to say whatever tickles people's ears or whatever pleases them. They're not going to challenge them or speak the truth to them uh, because they simply want to just remain comfortable in what they're doing. And they really don't love people. And they really don't genuinely care about their welfare or the honor of God or doing what's right. So he says, go your way. And sadly, what they're going to go do is horrible and selfish. So the five men departed and went into Laish. And they saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. And there were no rulers in the land who might put to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians and they had no ties with anyone. In other words, the Bible's telling us they're in a remote area where they're very secluded and nobody would be able to come and help them if somebody comes up and attacks them and tries to take over their territory. So they're easy prey is what the Bible's trying to indicate to us. So the spies came back, verse 8, to the brethren at Zor and Eshtel and said to them, they said to them, what's your report? What'd you find out? And they said, arise, let us go up against them. For we've seen the land, indeed, it is very good. And if you see that area of uh, the far north to Israel today, I mean, it's a beautiful territory. And they say, what, would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter and possess the land. When you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land, for God has given it into your hands. How do you know that? <laughs> They're assuming God's given it into their hands. Why? Because it's what they want. It's what they desire. And just because something seems easy doesn't always mean it's God. God has given it into your hands. It seems easy to acquire. They're secluded. They're vulnerable. A place where there's no lack of anything that's on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites, watch this now, went from there, from Zura and Eshtel, armed with weapons of war, and went up and encamped in Kirjath-Juram in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahane-Dan to this day, and there it is west of Kirjath-Juram. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim, and they came again to the house of Micah. And then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to the brethren, do you not know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a carved image and a molded image? Thou, therefore, consider what you should do. In other words, hey, we're moving to a new territory. It's secluded. We're going to take this property away from these people up in the north. There'll be nobody watching what we're doing. And, and we need to establish our own little worship system up there, our own religion. 
And, and we saw in this house, there's some good stuff to get a religion going. So why don't we take advantage of this? So verse 15, they turned aside, came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. And 600 men armed with their weapons of war of the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. And the priests who stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. And when they went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod, the household idols and the molded image, the priest said to him, Hey, what are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of just one man or that you may be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? Hey, this is an opportunity for promotion. Be quiet and sign on the dotted line. We're making you a job offer. Why would you want to stay here? I thought you were an opportunist. Why would you want this small little congregation? Here's an opportunity to come and be a, a, a priest of a whole tribe of people. And to pay, you're getting 10 shekels of silver for one family. Can you imagine what you'll get when you got a whole tribe of people? So his guys, again, he's a hireling. He's an opportunist. He's not a true servant of the Lord. Here's a greater opportunity of advancement. He's not interested in whether God's sending him. He just sees the opportunity. So the priest's heart was glad. Hey, great job offer. That's even better. Promotion. So he took the ephod and the household idols and carved image and took his place among the people. And they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock and the goods in front of them. So they travel that way because they're expecting Micah to come hunting them down from the rear. So they put the kids and the wives up front to keep them safe. And when they were a good way, verse 22, from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan and they turned around and said to Micah, what ails you that you've gathered such a company? What's up with this? You looking for a beef, they say? And he said to them, imagine this, it's almost humorous, the insanity of the speech. You have taken away my gods, which I have made. I put a lot of time into making those gods. That God's very important to me. I made it with my own hands. And now you've stolen my gods, he says, taken away my gods. Now what more do I have? Shows you how empty idolatry is. You steal somebody's gods, they don't have anything left. How can you say to me, what ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you. And you lose your life with the lives of your household. So they say, hey, you're getting a little hot under the collar. There's 600 of us with weapons. You might want to tone it down, Skippy, before something bad happens to you. They say, quiet down. And the children of Dan went their way. And Micah, sulking, had to go back home, saw they were too strong for him. So he turned and went back to his house. Kind of sad when your gods can be stolen, isn't it? Good way to evaluate something gets stolen it's your God it wasn't a very good God why do we worship the things that can get stolen I often wonder verse 27 so they took the things Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and they went to Laish up north to a people quiet and secure and look what they did they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire so they go and take this land from these innocent people when God didn't even call them or command them to do that and there was no deliverer 
because it was far from Sidon, they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there and called the name of that city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city was formerly Laish. So the tribe of Dan now ends up in the northern territory. And that's why historically we'll see later on in the time of the kings and the divided kingdom why the majority of the tribe of Dan ends up in the northern territory. And here we see the record of how that happened. Verse 30, and the children of Dan then set up for themselves. Notice, here it comes. They begin to establish idolatry now as a people. They set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land, possibly a reference to the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC when the northern tribes were taken away. And they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time. Notice the Bible, the Holy Spirit tells us all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So while there was a true worship system, God's prescribed way, the correct way to worship, they have established now their own little religion. They've established their way to worship God on their terms, not the terms that God would dictate. They basically exalted themselves over God. And sadly, here they are as people, again, who claim to follow the Lord, yet it's on their terms. It's by their ways. They follow and obey what they like or what is convenient to them. They disregard what's inconvenient and living again in inconsistency and being totally okay with that. And when we look at the tribe of Dan, instead... Of the people of Dan, listen, instead of them accepting by faith what God wanted for them and just embracing what God's will was for them and what God selected for them, they pursue after what they want for themselves, listen, and they even manage to obtain it. They manage to obtain what God doesn't want for them but what they want for themselves, but it ends up in a life of spiritual compromise and idolatry and problems and failure and incredible deterioration of their lives going forward historically. And, and this is something I think we all need to be aware of, that very same mistake, because we can do the same thing. Where in our lives, instead of accepting by faith what God wants for us and embracing it and knowing Father knows best and Lord, I don't want my will. Lord, I want your will. What do you want for me, Lord? I want what you want for me because you know best because you're a good God and a wise God. Instead, sometimes we can pursue after what we want for ourselves and sometimes we'll even manage to obtain it still. But the sad thing is, if we've selected what we want for ourselves and not what God wants for us, we usually end up in spiritual compromise and idolatry and failure and regrets and problems. Listen to Psalm 106 as it says it this way. It says, they soon forgot his works, that's God's, and did not wait for his counsel. But they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, tested God in the desert, listen, and God gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. Not waiting for God's counsel, not wanting what God wants. They started complaining and grumbling and, and in impatience. They said, we want, we want, we want me. And so eventually God said, okay, 
I'll give you what you want. And I'll allow you in giving you what you want also to see what comes along with that, which is emptiness and, and, and a complete struggle internally because you realize you're living off of the standard you chose for yourself instead of the standard that God chooses for us. And listen, God's standard is always way better. I assure you, we're never going to have a better idea for our life than God does. Trust the Lord and avoid that mistake. Let's stand. Let's pray together.